Latinas in Tech Present, Jefa Mode Live. From Latinas in Tech, welcome to Jefa Mode Live, the podcast that celebrates the extraordinary voices of Latinas in Tech, where resilience meets innovation and growth. I'm your host, Rocio Vanera, CEO and co-founder of Latinas in Tech. Jefa Mode Live is not just a word, it's a mindset, a symbol of strength and leadership. Built by Latinas for Latinas. Welcome, everybody, to Jefa Mode Life, a Latinas in Tech podcast. I'm your host, Rosie Van Europe. Today, I'm really excited to bring back to you an episode of a fireside chat we held at the Latinas in Tech Summit 2023 back in May in a conversation with Ellen Ochoa. Dr. Ellen Ochoa was the very first Latina astronaut at NASA. If you were not able to attend the summit, you can listen to this episode right here today. Que lo disfruten. Now let's dive right into it. We are honored to bring to this stage a very special guest, a Latina that has literally reached the stars, Dr. Ellen Ochoa. Moderating this conversation is Rocio Medina. Please welcome them with a big round of applause. Thank you, everybody. Just a quick reminder, in every panel that we have, uh, you will always see that QR code, and that's where you will put your questions. So I have Star Crush right now. I just met Elena Chua this morning, and I, it made my year my life. Uh, and I, I, I hope that it does to you, too. Um, so please welcome, and I'm going to stand so that I can read my speaker notes. Elena Chua, if you do not know her, she was the first Latina in space. For the last 30 years, Ellen has been working at NASA. She started as a researcher. Then she was uh, an astronaut. She went for, to four missions. And not just that. I mean, it's 30 years. See, she went on to be the director of, of flight crew operations and ultimately becoming the 11th director of NASA's Johnson Space Center. I mean, please welcome Dr. Ellen Ochoa. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and sharing uh, your story with so many powerful Latinas today. So, to just to start it, let's go back 30 years ago, even before. How was the landscape, the scenario, the outlook for a Latina with your drive uh, into science and STEM? Well, let me go back, as you say, even longer than that, probably 40 or 45 years ago when I was uh, an undergraduate and I was trying to decide uh, you know, what I wanted to major in and where I was headed. I didn't originally start out in any kind of tech or science or engineering field. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But I did take a lot of math, and I liked math. And so I decided uh, I should try to, um, you know, explore some fields that used the math I was learning. So I went to talk to a couple different professors, 
And uh, one of them was in the engineering department, and it was clear he was not at all interested in having me in his department. Uh, you know, he was just like, well, we did have a woman come through here once. But, you know, it's a, it's a really difficult course of study, and I just don't think you'd be interested, which was kind of ironic because I had specifically made an appointment because I thought I might be interested. Um, Sounds familiar. But, uh, you know, fortunately, I went to talk to another professor in the physics department, and I got a much different reception. He was happy to hear I was interested in physics. He told me about careers that people could have if they majored in physics, which was actually really important because I didn't have a good idea. You know, I didn't know any scientists or engineers. I, you know, I couldn't really picture uh, what somebody did if they majored in physics. And then when he found out I was finishing up the calculus series, he said, well, that's great. You've already learned the language of physics. And if you started into our classes, you could concentrate on the concepts, whereas most of the students will tr be trying to learn those two things simultaneously. So I think you do really well. Um, so not surprisingly, after those uh, two conversations, I thought I'd give physics a try. <laughs> and uh, that's what I ended up uh, majoring in and minoring in math. And I would say there's a variety of stories that I have like that, especially in the early years. Um, and I'm sure many other people have very similar stories. Um, but you know, what I really took away from that was every time I was discouraged, it was somebody that didn't know me at all. It wasn't personal, right? It's they, in their experience, they'd not seen anybody like me in their field, in their department. Not so uh, unconscious bias. Right, right, exactly. And, uh, but I always fortunately had people that supported me as well. And having those allies, I think, is just absolutely critical. So allies. for all the allies out there, uh, thank you so much for what you do. That's great. And now that we're going back, let's go even more back. Um, so you're a Latina. Where is Ochoa coming from? Where is the last name coming from? So my, uh, my dad's parents were Mexican. Uh, they grew up in Sonora. And um, after they were married and had a few kids, they emigrated and went first to Arizona and then to Southern California. That's where my dad was born. He was the youngest of 12. Um, and uh, my mom was not uh, Latina, uh, but um, you know, she, uh, she actually, after she met my dad, she learned Spanish so she could talk to his mother and his sisters and, and the whole extended family. Uh, but my dad, like, like so many others of that era, um, really didn't want to speak Spanish around the house. He didn't think it was important for us to grow up bilingual, which is so unfortunate because that would be such a huge advantage for me to have grown up so, um, so easily bilingual. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the background. Of course, going way back, Ochoa is Basque, and they originally came from uh, northern Spain. Great, thank you. It's good to know. It's just so many of us have that story, right? And so many of us had parents of that generation where assimilation was a thing and they didn't right. want us to speak Spanish or even have an accent. So, so this is very important um, to always keep your Latinity in your heart. <laughs> uh, now, Ellen, uh, tell me a little bit about what was the political landscape when you were interested in being an astronaut, you told me there was something going on that was hard. So what was it? 
Well, uh, I guess what I would say is um, certainly up until um, about the time that I um, selected physics as my major, uh, women weren't even allowed to be astronauts, and there were no astronauts of color. So, you know, people often ask, well, did you, you know, want to be an astronaut from the time you were young? And I was 11 when the Apollo 11 astronauts landed on the moon, so of course, um, you know, everybody was watching, not only in the U.S., but even around the world. But I never thought about it. And of, nobody would have ever asked uh, a girl at that time, this is something you want to grow up and do. But um, again, when I was about halfway through undergrad is when NASA selected the first group of astronauts that included women and included astronauts of color. And this was you know, after the 1960s civil rights, after the 1970s women rights. We'd, didn't quite get where we need to be in either of those, but we at least opened up a lot of careers that were uh, not available before. So that was a, a huge deal uh, to see the astronaut corps all of a sudden be something other than uh, you know all white men. And then uh, when I went off to graduate school, by this time I had determined I was interested in doing research. I'd had a couple summer research jobs, and, and so that really requires graduate school. Uh, near the end of my first year is when the space shuttle flew for the first time. It was a very different kind of spacecraft that had ever flown before. It was going to be used for a lot of different things, but a lot of it was research, research you couldn't do on Earth. And then two years later is when Sally Ride flew, first American woman in space, and, and of course that was just a huge milestone. And not only was she a woman, but she had majored in physics, like I had. She had gone to Stanford, which is where I was currently doing my graduate work. And I really, I think I really did need to see all those things in common for me to think about, well, this would be a, a, an amazing way Why not to, me? yeah, to, uh, to combine my interest in research with just the, this whole excitement and teamwork and discovery that comes along with space exploration. I love it. And this is a clear exemplification of the importance of role models. If we see them, we can be them. And if, especially if they have something in common with us, with us. She was a woman. You saw that, and that inspired you, and you could follow into steps that somebody's already breaking. Now, she did it. She's a Latina. She has a history like us. And in all of our companies, when you don't have somebody above you, that means you're it, that you can open doors to others. And I, I, I really treasure and keep uh, your, your teaching uh, from this moment. Now, you're now in NASA. And uh, this is uh, one of your four, uh, say, the first mission to space. How was it? Like, what did you see through your window? <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's just an amazing experience. It's always a little bit hard to really fully describe it, although I think these days, if you follow any of the social media from NASA or for some of the astronauts in space, um, you know, the resolution of the videos and, and photos are much higher than it used to be. But still, um, you know, just uh, seeing the Earth from space uh, with your own eyes, and it's just so vivid and so clear, and you're orbiting the Earth every hour and a half. You know, you're traveling at 17,500 miles per hour. So you're seeing, you're seeing the Earth really as, as, as one planet, one interconnected system. 
Um, of course, you can pick out the continents, but you don't see all these divisions that, as humans, we have put on our planet. It really gives you a very different perspective. It's just amazing. And how long were you in space? So that uh, first flight was nine days, and uh, I ended up having four flights total. They were all nine, 10, or 11 days, which was pretty typical for um, the 30 years that we flew the space shuttle. Of course, people now, you know, we have people in space every minute of every day. We have had for the last 22 and a half years, and they're typically spending at least six months and, and even up to a year in space. So it's kind of the difference between, you know, traveling to another country and actually living there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, being a Latina astronaut sometimes sounds like a dream, as something we cannot accomplish. Say, you're a teenager today. And you want to be Ellen Ochoa. You want to go to space, do things there, and let's go back. What, do, what career path, what things do you need to do as a teenager, as a college student, even as a current engineer that is doing, you will tell me, something else? How can I get to the moon? Well, uh, for the first thing I'll say is even when I sent in my application, which is right after I finished my PhD, I thought the same thing. I thought it was basically impossible, but you know that I didn't have anything to lose <laughs> by sending in the application. So, um, so if that's how you feel, um, you know, I was in the same boat. Um, certainly, uh, your educational background is one of the most important uh, things that NASA looks at. And for astronauts, you need to have um, also at least uh, some kind of graduate degree. And it needs to be in a technical field, right? Science or engineering, uh, computer science, medical doctor. Um, those are all things that NASA is looking for. And then they look, um, as you go into your career, uh, sort of what your career path is. In other words, have you been given more responsibility, kind of moved up quickly, or had the opportunity to uh, lead efforts? Um, and uh, they want to see evidence of people who are both good team players and good leaders, because astronauts have to play both of those yeah. roles. And not everybody is good at both of those roles. Uh, so um, they look for that. And so even younger kids, I tell them, you know, any experience where um, you're part of a team, you know, might be a sports team. For me, it was music. I was in, you know, bands and orchestras all through school, a dance team. You get that idea of you want to work on your own skills and be as good as you can, but then you also have to understand what's the goal of the whole group and how do I make the group better? That's great. Man, the sky is the limit, the limit literally here. And uh, I'm sorry, remind me what's the name of the latest mission that just went to space uh, from NASA? Uh, are, are you talking about the uncrewed no. one, the Artemis? Artemis, last fall? yes. Artemis. Yes. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I, I remember seeing, uh, they were putting together a team that this was not, they, they will go, and it caught my attention. It's extremely diverse. Extremely diverse, and now there's uh, other uh, private, like SpaceX and others that are sending humans to space, and there was a Mexican that went to space, there was a Colombian part of a, uh, a Mars mission. Uh, what is the outlook uh, for women in general, for people of color, uh, with uh, that when it has to do with aerospace? I mean, technology is very different. Uh, how, how, how does the future look like right now for people? 
Well, it, it certainly even changed a lot during the 30 years that I was at NASA, and I would say it's continuing to go in the right direction. We're not where we need to be, <laughs> but it has gotten a lot better. And there, um, there is a lot more focus, um, uh, on it, certainly at NASA and a lot of the aerospace companies that I'm familiar with, with where they're saying we need all the bright minds that we can find. And they're everywhere. It's just that the opportunity hasn't been everywhere. And we haven't always given the opportunity to people. So if you look at the last several classes of astronauts in particular, they have been very diverse. Um, the first one that was selected when I was the director of Johnson Space Center, and I, I get to sign off on the final approval, it was just eight people, but four men, four women. First time it had ever been, you know, 50-50. And you, you see a lot of other types of diversity, just as you saw on the Artemis II crew that was recently announced. Um, that will be flying, um, you know, end of next year or 2025. So um, what, you know, as I got into NASA, it was clear that NASA had made an effort and was continuing to make an effort to hire a more diverse workforce. But what I didn't see initially was any women or really much diversity at all in the leadership ranks. And that is something that did change. Uh, obviously, I ended up with the opportunity to be director of Johnson Space Center, the home of human spaceflight. So I always feel like I had the two best jobs in aerospace. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Jealousy. <laughs> and, um, and if you look at NASA today, um, actually, the heads of all the human space um, all of the NASA centers that support human spaceflight are women for the very first time. Mm. <laughs> and if you look, um, the, the president of SpaceX is Gwyn Shotwell, um, somebody I know. And um, so she's leading this company that has really, really disrupted, I would say, the, the spaceflight business. And you see executives, the... Um, until a few years ago, the um, CEO of Lockheed Martin was a woman, Mar Marilyn Hewson. So you, you, what you are seeing is, is women um, in leadership positions. But it is something that you can't take for granted. Right. You can't, uh, you know, one of the things I found out is you can't, you can't just sit back and do a good job and expect that somebody is going to sort of notice you. So I'll just give one example. So I've been in the astronaut corps a number of years. And now I had moved into sort of my first job in management at Johnson Space Center, which was as deputy director of the organization that uh, manages both the astronaut office and our aircraft division. And uh, I'd been in that position maybe three years, uh, working for the director of that division. And I was talking to the center director one day, and he was saying, well, when the current director of your organization moves on, I'm thinking of naming, and he mentioned um, a male astronaut as the next director. Um, tell me what you think about him and what kind of job you think he would do. So I was a little taken aback. So I answered his question, and I said, well, I hope when you're selecting that position that you would also consider me a strong candidate. You know, I've been the deputy for the last three years. And See, um, let's get loud. <laughs> That's what I mean. And there had been a couple of, you know, diff difficult scenarios in which I had been involved with working and all of that. And the look on his face, he was just absolutely shocked. He was like, oh, is that something you'd be interested in? I mean, 
clearly had never thought about me, even though I was like the second. I was like the logical <laughs> uh, candidate for that. So, so even though I thought, I can't believe you weren't thinking about it, of course, as I reflected on it later, I also realized, well, I never really actually said to anybody that, you know, this is the next step for me and I would like to take that next step. So, um, so we, can't, we can't just think. You know, I think if I had been a man in that situation, I would have been the logical candidate. Yeah, and we have to realize... Um, sometimes we have to we have to speak up, which I had not done until that Absolutely. moment. Absolutely! Oh my God, you're just touching on the most important thing that Latinas in tech and Latinas everywhere, or people of color for the matter, need to do. There is a game. Everybody else is playing by this set of rules. They ask for things, and other bosses assume they are the right candidates. We have to ask. That is the The, the, the rule of the game that we're not playing. All we need to do is get loud and ask for what we want before anything is offered. As you said, we have nothing to lose, right? Right? I love it. So um, I would love, before I go into Q&A, and please do scan that code, send your questions, of, upvote uh, any questions you like. Um, I want to mention, you wrote a book. And I had it, and I left it in the back. <laughs> But you wrote a, a book that will be showcased tomorrow in our uh, virtual um, um, book store. <laughs> um, But tell us about the book and what it is for. Okay, so it is um, a bilingual children's book. It's a board book. Um, and um, I was actually um, approached by publishers, and all they do is bilingual children's books. They're called Little Libros. Um, and, uh, and they're based in um, the Los Angeles area. And they, um, uh, this was a couple years ago, and they said, uh, we don't really have much in the STEM area. And we were wondering if you would be willing to write a series of five books, one for each of the letters of STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And I had never really thought about writing children's books. You know, this was uh, certainly not something on my to-do list or anything <laughs> like that. But of course, I do do a lot of outreach. And I thought, well, this is, um, you know, sort of an age group that I've never really done anything for. Um, and uh, so, so I agreed to do it. And of course, they were um, being already publishers. Uh, they had a, a wonderful illustrator um, already. And uh, so the first one came out last fall. Uh, the science book. It's called We Are All Scientists. Todos Somos Cientificos. Um, and this fall, two more will come out, uh, the one on technology and the one on engineering, and then next uh, spring, hopefully the last two. So it's something that, um, to me, it was, it was about the science one in particular. What I talk about is creativity and curiosity. Mm -hmm. And this is something that kids already naturally have. Mm -hmm. But when I was a kid, that's not what I associated a scientist with. Um, and this, that's the connection I really want to make uh, for young kids and for the people who might be reading these books to them. Um, parents, grandparents, um, teachers, librarians, and particularly families that are bilingual where they can sort of learn the vocabulary together, both in English and lovely. Spanish. This is lovely. And for all of us that have little kids, 
This is just perfect. And, and we'll make sure you can find uh, that book and you can get it directly from uh, Amazon. Or when, where yes, are you, you can get it from Amazon. Yeah, you so can get it from the publisher directly. Wonderful. Okay, all right, so let's go to Q&A. As the former director of NASA's Johnson Space Center, what initiatives did you prioritize to promote, promote diversity and inclusion within the organization? Yeah, uh, we did a number of things. And of course, this was really important to me, but I felt it was important for NASA in general. And, and there was a lot of support at NASA in doing similar things. Um, because first of all, as I said, we want to get all the bright minds. Um, so that's what really diversity is. And then once you have them in your organization, you want to make sure you're utilizing them yeah. and that um, people feel really engaged. People feel valued and respected, and that's where the inclusion comes in. So one of the things we had at Johnson Space Center was uh, what we called an Innovation and Inclusion Council. That was made up of a, a subset of the senior leaders at our center, trying to think about what kind of initiatives can we do that will really help people feel engaged. Um, certainly one of the things that was started actually when I was deputy director uh, was employee resource groups. And, and we absolutely had a Hispanic one and a woman one as well. And what was so amazing to me is we, we were challenging them, how do you make our entire organization stronger through your own ideas that come up through these employee resource groups? And our Hispanic group had just so many good ideas. Um, first of all, we had members of the Mexican Space Agency, which was pretty new, that came and visited us. And so they acted as translators as we took them around Johnson Space Center. Another thing that they did, and, and you can still find this online, is the International Space Station program had started putting out a two-minute video every week about here's what happened in space this week on the space station. And they called it Space to Ground. So our Hispanic employee resource group said, well, um, how about if we film a second video, same words, but we do it in Spanish. We call it Espacio a Tierra. And we put that out, and we can reach many more people, not only in the US, but in Latin America. And they've been doing that for probably 10 years now. And so you can just Google Espacio a Tierra and, um, and find these two-minute videos and that lets you know what's going on in space. But that was another example. Um, then there were things that we needed to do that looked more um, at some of our, both our formal and our informal processes. So we'd already gone through sort of an effort to look at, like, how do we do promotions? How do we pick people for training and development programs? And, and changed them up so that we would help mitigate unconscious bias. But then we also wanted to look at informal processes. So one of the things that we did, and this is... Um, something you see in every organization. So there's all these informal activities, like there's a center-wide team we're forming, and each division needs to you know, nominate somebody. Or maybe there's an agency-wide NASA team, and we need to have a couple people. It's really easy for managers to, to just kind of go to the same person over and over. Oh, this is my go-to person. You know, They always do a great job and, and not really give it a whole lot of thought. Um, so what we did, we came up with this program called TOP 
Transparent Opportunities Program, and we asked um, all of our leaders to advertise these opportunities within their organizations and let people raise their hand and then actually understand, um, kind of work with people with their own individual career development plans and say, well, this is something that really matches you and give many more people an opportunity to do that. And, and then you get a much more diverse group of people who have these informal opportunities, which we all know are really important for actually getting you know, the formal um, promotions and, and ways to move up in the organization. So those are just a couple of the, the, the things that we did. That is amazing, and uh, uh, the learning here, we can all contribute, it's like El Caballo de Troya, we're in. Let's, you know, let's let other people in, let other people grow. Detect who in your company needs help. Join or lead an ERG group. All those things uh, really help us. Whatever community or intersection you're at, you can always be an agent or a catalyst of change. So thank you for that. Now to the next question. You mentioned already uh, uh, the first female astronaut being uh, a mentor or a role model. They want to know what role model, uh, what role, sorry, did mentors play in your career and what was the specific most meaningful advice that he or she shared with you? So um, I did not have a person who was like a formal mentor. Like we talked about, okay, you're my mentor or I it was part of a mentoring program. Although much later I became a mentor in both formal and informal ways. But I, I certainly had people who helped me out in my career. Um, I'm, I'll go back to, first of all, to graduate school um, where you know probably the most important person um, getting you set on your career is your PhD advisor. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually ended up having kind of a primary and a, a secondary one, two, pe two people, and they were both just fantastic. Um, you know, they never acted like I should be there. And um, from the very first time I went to talk to this professor when I was applying to Stanford, um, he seemed um, very willing and open to have me be part of his research group. And again, just to set the stage, that was not the norm. And in fact, when I was taking the PhD entrance exam, um, at Stanford, uh, the way they did it, and here's an example of a really bad process. <laughs> um, they had the student meet with 10 different professors individually for 12 minutes each. And there's only two people in the room in each of these sessions, the professor and the student. It's all oral, there's nothing written down, nobody knows what goes on in that room. And one of my friends heard one of the professors, you know, the week before the exam say, well, I've never passed a woman this exam and I don't ever plan to because they don't belong in our department. And of course, with that kind of process, it was easy for him to just give a really low grade. There was, you know, there was no, no record of what went on in that room. Um, and uh, so, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of shocked me and I thought, well, I hope I don't get that professor, you know, because yeah. there were 10 and there were 60 overall professors, so I wasn't necessarily going to see, see that particular one. But then I thought, how many other professors, <laughs> you know, think the exact same way? And anyway, I was just fortunate to hook up with um, two really good professors who are still friends um, and mentors to this day. I saw them both within the last year, even you know, 45 years after I started graduate school or whatever it is, um, something like that, 40 something. Um, but um, you know, for them 
to essentially just show that um, I had as much right to be there as anybody else and to support me, that, that was a great start. And um, then I had a really good advisor, uh, supervisor um, in my first NASA research job. This was before I was selected as an astronaut when I was working as a research engineer. And um, he put me into my first supervisory role. He pushed me to do things probably faster than I would have thought to um, on my own. Um, but he just showed a lot of confidence um, in my abilities. And then I would just say, it, um, once I joined the astronaut corps, um, it really was a very collegial environment. And astronauts helped other astronauts, because we all knew you know, the succeeding on our missions is important for NASA in general, and that's why we're here. Yeah. Uh, so just, you know, if I ever had a question about um, when I first became a flight engineer on, on one of my missions, which is the position that really works very closely with the commander and pilot, who are generally career um, uh, test pilots before being selected as an astronaut, uh, I just went around to other astronauts who had served in that role and got all kinds of tips, and they were just really um, happy to help me out. So those were some of the things that really helped me. Thank you so much. Um, we have another question uh, from Alexis Pedrosa. Wait, that's the one I just read, sorry. Um, yeah, so as the former director of NASA's Johnson Space Center, no? We did that one. Oh, we did that one. Okay, did you feel the urge to fit in with the male uh, counterparts and their way of acting? <laughs> well, I'm not even sure I could if I... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I really just tried to be myself, but I think it is important to understand what's important to an organization. Um, you know, NASA had a, a set of values. There were four of them when I was there, and they've actually added a fifth since I uh, retired from NASA. But um, the four values that they talked about were excellence, teamwork, integrity, and safety, which, as you can imagine, is very important for NASA. Since I've retired, they've actually added inclusion as one of their core values, which I was so happy to see. Um, but to me, it's about uh, demonstrating the values of the organization. And, and of course, hopefully you've picked an organization whose values um, you know, speak to yourself as well, right? Mm -hmm. So those uh, were all things that uh, were important to me. So what I tried to demonstrate was teamwork and excellence. So that you know, a lot of what you do when you are first in the astronaut corps and you're training, it's like being in school. And so it's about studying hard. And you know, I spent 10 years in college, so I knew how to do that. That, <laughs> that, that came very naturally to me. But then to understand as a member of a crew, you know, how do you, how do you make sure that you're doing everything you can to help, help your crew be successful? So that's um, part of teamwork. Um, integrity is something that, you know, again, is important to me um, just in anything that I do. And so that was something that I tried to demonstrate as well. So I, I think it's, you know, maybe not, if you don't think so much about, you know, acting as you do or as a man, but what are the values that are important to your organization that really speak to you? I think those are the things that are important and that will be noticed by your organization. And again, if you need to speak up about, well, I thought one of our values was, you know, respect of others, and I'm not seeing that being demonstrated in this room, 
you know, um, then yeah. you can point it out in a way that is something the organization itself has already said. Wonderful. So she's showcasing how excellence sets us apart. We do not need to blend in. She's shining, and now others want to be like her instead. <laughs> Thank you for that. So for the next one, um, have you ever had imposter syndrome uh, while growing uh, in your career? And could you share an experience? Well, that wasn't um, a term that was really around. But I, uh, of course, uh, there were times when, um, number one, I felt um, you know, that I stuck out like a sore thumb. Uh, there were times when I thought, oh, everybody knows so much more about this than I do. Um, there were times when I thought, you know, to, can I really learn and do the things that I want to do to be able to succeed here? Because um, there were certainly parts of being an astronaut that were well outside of my experience base, learning how to, you know, eject out of an aircraft and some of the land and water survival stuff. I mean, I'd never even been a Girl Scout, so uh, I didn't really have any of those skills. Um, but, you know, I... In some way, so I understand why people like the term imposter syndrome because it's, it's the idea that other people are experiencing it too. But for me, it's a little bit uncomfortable because it uses the word syndrome. And, and I, what I want to tell people is, like, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't have a syndrome. It's very human that when you get in an environment where you, you're, you're learning, it's something new, it's something different you haven't done before, that you feel very uncomfortable. Um, that's, that's what pushes you to learn, to ask questions, to work hard. And really, everybody should feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I kind of worry about the people who go into a situation that is new and different, they don't know very much about it, and they're not uncomfortable because those people aren't going to ask enough questions. They're not going to feel like they have something to learn, and they do. Everybody has something yeah. to learn in that situation. So I think you have to realize, well, Feeling uncomfortable is part of, of learning and growing and, and moving on in ways that, you know, I think will be very exciting for people in their careers. Um, and you have to use that as fuel to say, well, um, so what questions do I need to ask? Uh, what people could I go talk to? You know, maybe there's a, you know, Latinas in tech organization at my, at my company and they'll help me. Or, you know, maybe Society of Women Engineers or... Um, you know, whatever it is. Um, but thinking about taking those steps and realizing, hey, six months to a year from now, I'm going to feel very different because I'm going to have learned so much. And I'm going to be able to contribute in a whole new way. Absolutely. I just want... Thank you. <laughs> I, I want to take a minute to have you guys internalize what she just say. It's very important. Like, imposter syndrome nowadays, that term, is almost a must. All of us have gone through it or are going through it, or at least have a friend that went through it and they don't realize they did go through it. Anyway, um, this is only evidence that you're daring greatly. You're doing something outside of your comfort zone. It does not speak poorly of yourself, but it's, as you say, almost a must if you're in the path of success. So write that down and read it every time you don't believe in yourself and you recognize you're going through this. Thank you for that. Now let me go to the uh, last question. I'm gonna uh, choose a fun one and easy to answer. We have very few minutes left. So when you were in space, what was your favorite snack? 
Well, I will say one thing that we did take up on all of our shuttle missions, and, and actually everybody ate these, was a lot of tortillas. So, um, so and, and why, why would that be? Uh, uh, so if you think about a lot of what you eat on Earth, you know, a lot of sandwiches, um, you do not want to take bread into space because um, think about what's left on your plate when you finish eating a sandwich. All crumbs. these crumbs, right? So if, if you actually had bread in space, there are crumbs floating throughout, um, <laughs> throughout the spaceship. And, um, and they could get in your eyes and, you know, up your nose and into equipment, which is the really bad yeah. part. And so we, we don't take anything that would, um, that would produce crumbs. Mm. So tortillas are the obvious um, uh, sub, sort of substitute for that. And so uh, we ate them for lots of different things. We, we made breakfast tortillas. Um, we brought up, you know, maybe chicken salad or uh, peanut butter and made sandwiches. We even used them for dessert. So if you've ever gone camping and made s'mores... Again, we can't have graham crackers because crumbs. crumbs. So we would take uh, tortillas and we'd spread some peanut butter, put some chocolate, which, you know, the peanut butter acted as the paste so it wouldn't float away. Um, and then uh, some marshmallows, wrap it up, put it in the heater and have space oh s'mores. God. Space s'mores, space tacos, space burritos. Thank you so much, Ellen. You're amazing. You're welcome. Please. We are one, we are together.